Welcome to Rethinking Wellness, a podcast exploring the diet culture, disinformation, dubious diagnoses, and disordered eating that are so pervasive in contemporary wellness culture, and how to avoid falling into these traps so that you can find your own true well-being. I'm your host, Christy Harrison, and I'm a registered dietitian, certified intuitive eating counselor, journalist, and author of the books Anti-Diet, which was published in 2019, and The Wellness Trap, which came out on April 25th and is now available wherever books are sold. You can learn more and order it now at christyharrison.com slash thewellnesstrap. Hey there, welcome back to Rethinking Wellness. I'm Christy, and my guest today is Lee Tillman, an ex-wellness influencer who's now thinking and writing critically about influencer culture. We discuss how she got into wellness influencing in the first place and the role of her eating disorder in that process, how it affected her mental well-being to be so wrapped up in wellness for work, what it's been like to leave influencing, her upcoming memoir about her life as an influencer and life beyond it, tips for shifting your relationship with social media, and more. This was a great conversation. I can't wait to share it with you. And just a heads up that there are a couple of minor mentions of eating disorder behaviors in the context of discussing Lee's recovery. Before we dive into the interview, a few quick announcements. This podcast is made possible by my paid subscribers at rethinkingwellness.substack.com. Not only do paid subscriptions help support the show and keep me able to make the best free content I possibly can, but they also get you great perks like early access to every episode, bonus episodes, bi-weekly bonus Q&As, subscriber-only comment threads where you can connect with other listeners, and lots more. Just go to rethinkingwellness.substack.com to sign up, and thanks so much to everyone who's become a paid subscriber so far. This podcast is also brought to you by my new book, The Wellness Trap, Break Free from Diet Culture, Disinformation, and Dubious Diagnoses, and Find Your True Well-Being, which is now available wherever books are sold. The book explores the connections between diet culture and wellness culture, how the wellness space became overrun with scams, misinformation, and conspiracy theories, why many popular alternative medicine diagnoses are misleading and harmful, and what we can do instead to create a society that promotes true well-being. Just go to christyharrison.com slash the wellness trap to learn more and buy the book. That's christyharrison.com slash the wellness trap, or just go into your favorite local bookstore and ask for it there. Now, without any further ado, let's go to my conversation with Lee Tillman. Lee, welcome to the show. I'm so excited to talk with you for Rethinking Wellness. Oh, me too, Christy. Yeah, this is going to be so great. I've, I've been following your work for a long time. You've had this whole journey as a blogger and wellness influencer, and then you got help for your eating disorder, and then you left influencing altogether, and you're now critical of influencer culture. And I'm really, really interested in the work you're doing. There's so much in your story that I think resonates with me and with the themes we cover in this podcast. So I want to try to explore all of that as much as we can in this hour. But I'd love to start out by talking a bit about your history with wellness culture. How did you first start to get into it? And what led you to become a wellness influencer? Well, I think um, what drove me to wellness was a curiosity that I've just always had. And the promise that or wellness is promised that there was like something better. 
I remember like my first kind of brush with wellness or really kind of when I started to get into it was like in 2013 when I would read the blogs and Instagram accounts of these vegan bloggers who were like super tan and thin and eating only papayas and bananas. I was like, wow, that looks so, and they were saying how, you know, it helps their eyesight and their kids don't have to have glasses anymore because they're vegan. All these like crazy claims where I was like, wow, like that's so interesting. But I also feel like I, I mean, like before then, like while even in college, I summered at an organic farm and that was like my first kind of introduction. I wouldn't call that even wellness, but just like, I've always been interested in the natural world. And like, I've always been kind of like a nature girl. And so I feel like it was just kind of like the perfect kind of path to find like, oh, there's alternative ways of, of living. I'm very non-conventional. And I was really drawn to that. And then I also like one summer I worked at a organic raw smoothie place in my hometown as a way to like make money during college. So all those little kind of intros. Yeah, that is a real slippery slope into wellness culture. I feel like both the organic farming kind of world. And that's where I came into it as well. Cause I worked in environmental journalism. I was like really into the environmental movement in college and worked at one of the pergs doing canvassing for environmental causes and went into journalism right after graduating, but like got into environmental journalism specifically and wanted that to be my beat. And I feel like that was sort of like a feeder into a lot of wellness culture stuff. And a, certainly a lot of, you know, alternative medicine ideas and, just ideas about like big food and big farm, you know, big ag and like sort of demonizing the food system in a lot of ways that, you know, there's certainly issues with the food system, but there's also, I think, ways in which that can, the sort of rightful calling out of those issues could easily get twisted into this personal philosophy or way of approaching food and the food system that's like very shaming and blaming like moral high ground value. Yeah. Where it starts to kind of become your identity and, you know, the other quotes, even like, you know, you are what you eat. And yeah, like, I think it like all comes from such a good place. Like, and we can probably get into this later because like, I still love the farmer's market and like the CSA. And like, I also just love food. And like, I, I sometimes think that like some of, some of the fresh food tastes better than older food. But like, that's also a really interesting part of my recovery is like finding out like what I like again and like kind of re-entering the CSA or in like the co-op with the kind of this new, because like, I think the first couple of years, like I was avoiding all those things totally. But yeah, like with this kind of new philosophy that is actually kind of like an anti-food as identity philosophy and just having food be something that I can enjoy and that like sustains me but totally different from the way that I used to view food, which we'll probably get into now. <laughs> yes, yes. I'd love to hear more about that, like how food became your identity and how you got wrapped up in that. So basically what I just explained a little bit about my upbringing, like I love food. I come from a family that also loves food. My parents fed my sister and I very, very well. Like we took our family vacations based off of food. They brought us our first trip to Europe. I was like, I think I was 14 when they took us to Europe for the first time. And it was one of the most amazing trips of my life. We ate so well. We went to Barcelona and I ate like paella and squid and pasta. And my parents are very, very big foodies. I know that people cringe at that word now, but I don't really know how else to describe it. 
it's one of the things that brings us together as a family. We ate dinner as a family. All of us, if you were home, you were sitting down at the dinner table. It was, it's an integral part of our family and my extended family as well. I have an aunt who has published three cookbooks. She opened up a restaurant in Harvard Square in Boston. Now she is a private chef, but she's also like worked with people who are recently out of incarceration to help them get off their feet at a non-for-profit, teaching them how to bake. And so like food is part of our family. And so I always took a liking to it. Like my dad, when I turned 18, he gave me his knives that he got when he was 18. And he made sure that before I went off into the real world, I knew how to drive stick shift and cut an onion. Those were the things that like, he was like, okay, my daughter needs to know how to do these things. She needs to know how to cut an onion. She needs to know how to drive stick shift. So I love it. But I think that I went down this hole and like I had an eating disorder. I think it's important to say I had an eating disorder in my teens. So 2006 to 2008. So that was like pre-wellness. Like, I mean, wellness was around, but it was definitely like pre-goop. So I think like wellness was a slippery slope to that eating disorder. And I think I found a excusable way to have my eating disorder in with wellness. And it wasn't until I entered recovery that I realized like, oh my God, I have a fear of regular grocery stores. Oh my God, I have a fear of eating non-organic tomatoes. I am unable to relax around food unless I can control what's going on inside of it. I'm unable to eat at certain restaurants because they're not safe. In fact, most restaurants, like I had this kind of circle of restaurants that I would hit up in LA and it's like such a bummer because like a lot of times now that I'm in recovery, people be like, oh, you lived in LA. Did you ever go to this restaurant? It's like, no, I only went to Erewhon and Whole Foods and Cafe Gratitude. I only went to the healthy places. I was so afraid of like, I lived in Koreatown for three and a half years and I never once ate Korean food. Sad. <laughs> so sad. I guess I just got to go back and do it. Right. I know. Good excuse to go visit, I guess. I did get like one year of, of recovery in LA and I ate food then, but yeah. <laughs> it's so limiting though. I mean, compared to like what you're, what you grew up with too, where it sounds like food was adventure and like trying everything and you just got so hemmed in by this wellness stuff. Yeah. I've heard you mention that you thought you had an adrenal gland problem that was related to some period problems you were having. And that's what led you to start doing some of the wellness things and bringing your followers along with you when you had some followers online already. Looking back, what do you think was at the root of those period problems and and that supposed adrenal issue? Do you think that it had anything to do with your eating disorder? Yes. When I moved to LA, it was 2015. I was definitely restricting probably like minorly or like definitely underweight if I were to like look at it now I was also in this kind of period of like maybe like under eating and then maybe like I don't know I don't even want to say overeating but my weight had been always kind of going up and down within these however many pounds which is really common with dieting like yo-yo and it wasn't probably noticeable to most people but it was very noticeable to me and so I wasn't really consistently feeding my body. And I was also kind of using substances in when I had been living in New York. And I'd also been purging. But when I moved to LA, I was like two years or a year off of purging. But I was purging in other ways. I was I was over exercising. Um, so I just was basically like putting my body through the rigor. 
And I moved to LA and I think my body and I you know, already before I moved to LA, if I drank coffee, I was basically like going through panic attacks. And I mean, it was over 10 years ago. So I don't really know exactly what led to it. But I do remember moving to LA and kind of falling into a depression. And I was experiencing social anxiety for the first time. But I was also trying to like live differently. And you know, not rely on drinking and, and using drugs. And I was also trying to like be healthy and make new friends. Like I barely knew anyone in LA. And so I was really tired all the time. And I was like sleeping a lot. And the coffee was making me go crazy. And I think I just after some Googling, I was like, Oh, I, I think I have adrenal gland issues. Another thing that kind of led me down this this path was doing some research and thinking, okay, I have PCOS. And I went to actually like a real doctor. I went to a endocrinologist and I was like, oh, I, I think I have PCOS. Like, can you test? And I fell under some of the symptoms because I was like growing hair on my face. That was really thick. I was missing periods. I was tired. So my doctor was like, yeah, you probably have PCOS. And so like, that was kind of the, the extent of it. Like she didn't do any other. And that's also what I think PCOS can be is like, just like a number of symptoms. Sometimes you do have cysts and I did not, but she was like, yeah, you can still have PCOS without cysts. I was basically like, okay, cool. Like, I guess I fall under these circumstances. I probably have PCOS and I probably have adrenal gland issues. No actual testing, really. I mean, that's funny because I was actually misdiagnosed with PCOS too. Also, when I was restricting and not eating enough and sort of seesawing between restriction and like rebound eating and thought I was super quote unquote healthy and was like very orthorexic actually. And I was actually tested and the doctor interpreted the labs in this sort of non-standard way that I now realize is like a functional medicine thing that's like, these values are normal, but taken together, the ratio is abnormal. So you have PCOS. And I didn't. Like, it turned out that it wasn't that. You know, for me, it was the period issues ended up having to do with not eating enough and overexercising and, you know, just disordered eating. But it's interesting how easily some people can get misdiagnosed with that. And that there's not sort of a digging and like an effort to say, are you eating enough? Are you exercising too much? Like what's going on sort of at the root of this, right? Right. And I, I like, I don't even know now if I have PC. Like, I don't know if it was a misdiagnosis. I have no idea. And part of my recovery has been like not really following up with that because like I'm getting my period every month and my weight's stable and that's all that. I'd rather have some of the, like, I still have some of the symptoms of PCOS. Like I have hair that grows from my chin and, and all these other things, but I don't like the way that I've talked about it with my dietitian is like, that's a very small side effect to not having to live a restrictive lifestyle. Like I'd rather have the PCOS symptoms. Like I'm not trying to manage those symptoms because they're so much lesser of a problem than an eating disorder. And when I try to manage my PCOS, I get an eating disorder. You know, so I don't even know if I have it. And like part of my, like maybe one day I will go back on a little journey and like, I don't know, I don't know, but like I get my period, I'm healthy. That's kind of a marker now. Yeah. I'm so curious how you got to that point. That is a pretty far level of recovery to get to, right? How did that sort of start to shift your relationship with your content, what you're putting out there and like with wellness culture? It was very slowly and then all at once I decided to go on Instagram hiatus in 2019 and I 
turned Instagram off and, you know, everything comes flooding when you take something away. I feel like, you know, you close one door and another one opens and my eating disorder got really loud when I turned Instagram off and I went to a treatment center. Well, first, actually, I was like seeing a therapist or I had been seeing a therapist and I was like, I think I'm restricting. And she was like, just stop, you know, just, it's like almost a joke. It's like, okay, like that's, how are you still a therapist? And she was like, just stop restricting, just eat. So I stopped seeing her and then I called another one. I called a friend and I was like, who's your eating disorder therapist? And she gave me that number. And I talked to that therapist for like 20 minutes, just like on a consultation call. And she's like, sweetie, I think you need like more help. Like you just sound, you sound bad. (laughs) So she's like, why don't you go? Like, I don't know. So then I was like, oh, so I called a treatment center in LA and I thought, you know, oh, I'll do their monthly outpatient groups. And then I went in for a consultation and they were like, oh, you need to be here like every day. So I did like outpatient daily. And that just, I was so ready to like be healthy. I was so ready to be healthy. And the funny thing is be healthy to me means all foods fit. But like before be healthy to me means only like 5% of foods or something that I could eat. That's like, you know, I used to get so triggered when people were like in early recovery, like the world health. But now I'm like, oh no, health is so different for everybody. And for someone who's in recovery from an eating disorder, for me, like I can't have restrictions and rules. And so like, that's what I needed. And and my, my treatment center did a really good job of helping me see how living in LA, the lines between disordered eating and eating disorders are very blurred. That's really interesting. And the the wellness milieu there, I feel like is so strong, right? Like everybody's pursuing wellness in certain circles anyway, but it feels like pretty ubiquitous actually from the time I've spent there. I've never lived there myself, but spent some time there with friends and family members who've lived there and stuff. And yeah, it just feels like, it feels like it's just so pervasive and like people like are going to places like Cafe Gratitude or yoga or whatever, just for fun as like a social thing, but then it's like can easily turn into not to call them out or whatever, because there's lots of places like that, but just that's like the social milieu you're a part of. And it's so wellnessy. And and then being an influencer too, I mean, there must have been a real pull to like keep doing it from that as well. Yeah. And I mean like when I was an influencer, it's not like I was like, oh God, I gotta do this wellness stuff. Like I was so into it. The more I shared about it, the more I got into it. I just kind of kept falling deeper and deeper into this rabbit hole. I certainly felt like as an influencer, I needed to look a certain way. It was probably similar to how actresses and models feel. Like I feel like my image was my brand. My body was my business card. I couldn't gain weight. It was also so twisted. I felt like, I mean, I was so disordered and I had such body dysmorphia that I was like, okay, like compared to the like anorexic twigs of the 2010s like the Lindsay lohans and nicole ritchie i'm curvy i was like i'm a natural looking like isn't that insane oh yeah yeah i was like oh i'm like natural looking and like i I have curves and now i look at that those pictures of myself and i'm like god i look so underweight and i also have i'm pretty sure i like had orange skin because i was eating so many carrots i mean it was also definitely like the day of the filters but I think I actually just truly had orange skin because I was like overeating carrots, which is really common. 
Yeah, so many fruit and vegetables that like. Oh, but I didn't eat fruit, Christy, because I had too much sugar. <laughs> oh, right. Of course, of course. I was like very anti-sugar. Yeah, that's a big, it's a big trend in wellness for sure. Oh, it's been a journey. You name a trend, I've done it. I was like anti-banana, and yeah. Oh man. How do you see that differently now? Like, what you know, wellness trends that you were really into then? Do you just? sort of cringe at now or see in a different light? I mean, the way that I see it now is like, oh my gosh, like I, I it's so funny because like, I, I mean, I'm still always learning and I like think about and I see some younger women going down that path in their 20s. I think it's a common path to go down, especially in your 20s as like you're exiting the party stage and like you're figuring out who you are, especially like Gen Z language, like yearns to be more self-aware. We're all talking about mental health doing what's good for you. I'm just like, oh, Lee, you were on that journey. You were just trying to find what's good for you and you got lost along the way. Or like another way to look at it is like, cool, yeah, like Jack and Jill, like I'm just giving random names, like they can they can do their wellness stuff and like have a happy life and be fulfilled. But like there's something in your brain that you can't because you are predestined for whatever reason to have an eating disorder And so anytime like you are overthinking food and your body, that's bad. It's kind of like a cigarette smoker. Like you just can't do one. So it helps me to think about it that way. The way that I thought about it back then, here's some examples, red light therapy and like saunas and cryotherapy. If those were ever like brought up to me, the way that I knew that it's disordered is because I was always thinking, will this help me lose weight? Everything was always connected to weight for me, like gut health and bloat and digestion and travel and sleep. Like everything was like, oh my God, I I, I need to always just be at the lowest weight I can possibly be. And a lot of people, they do red light therapy and they're not thinking about their weight. So it's like, everybody's going to come at it differently. And I can't say what's working for for one person, but I know for me, I was always like, will this affect my weight? Like, how will this help me be thin? I feel like that's the subtext of a lot of the marketing and the sort of like promise of those things, even if it's not explicitly said. And like, yeah, there are some people who can do it and sort of not get sucked in that way. But I think so many people, whether they have an eating disorder, like a genetic tendency towards an eating disorder or chronic dieting, or they've been in a larger body and they're pressured to lose weight from the conventional healthcare system slash diet culture. So many people are coming into it with pre-existing baggage around weight and food. And so it's hard not to get sucked into such a such a degree, you know. And I'm sure there are people out there who don't, but I feel like the norm in the people that I see for sure is like to get sucked into where it becomes really unhealthy, this pursuit of health. How did it affect your mental well-being to be so obsessed with wellness? I mean, it was definitely anxiety provoking. It was always something to worry about. Like when you're terrified of toxins and how foods are cooked, it's like kind of like a rabbit hole. There, there's always something else to improve. It's kind of like tied to the bulletproof visualization. <laughs> bulletproofization of our lives where it's like all especially well it's like so biohacked it's very masculine optimizing every area of your life and i think just like 
that level of self-awareness is like too much. There is, I believe for me, there is a level of too much thinking about oneself and a lot of wellness is just thinking about oneself and you know, me, how can I improve? How can I be better? How do I look? How do I feel? I just don't think that that's good for me to think that much about myself, to be honest. So there's your answer. Just not, not great. Yeah, for sure. And I'm curious too, like how your content started to shift once you got into recovery, because it sounds like recovery was really, you were really ready for it and you kind of threw yourself into it. And I'm sure that affected the content that you were putting out on Instagram and how did that, how did people respond to that for you having been a wellness influencer and having been so into all this stuff that was like really linked to your eating disorder? Well, I think when I came back from my hiatus and I was in recovery, I didn't want to talk about my eating disorder. I wanted to just be me. You know, I wanted to show everybody this other side. I had basically shown them like a one, one side of Lee for the past five years and I wanted to be a different side and I I had cut my hair and I was ready to be kind of my goofy normal self and share about other things that I liked but you know you know people were following me for the recipes and for the wellness inspo and so it was not received well there were certainly people who were like you know guys like leave her alone um but the critics were loud the way that I like to say it is like, it's imagine if like Toyota, the car shop was all of a sudden like, Hey guys, we're going to sell lamps. People would be like, what? No, you sell cars. Toyota can do whatever they want. It's none of my business. I don't personally care, but like it's on the internet. People are just loud. So yeah, I would say like, it didn't go great. I lost a lot of sponsorships. I lost a lot of money and I lost a lot of followers. How did that affect you to have that kind of reaction and that kind of consequence to your shift? I mean, I always knew that it was a question of life or death for me. So I was ready to accept it. I was just like, all right, give me what you got. I'm never going back to that. Lee, I'm so much happier now. And so if this is what people want from me, then maybe this isn't the best career. You know, if they only want this one side of me, then I'll find something else to do. I'll go back and I'll wait tables or I'll get a job somewhere and figure it out. And you did that for a while, right? Like you shut down your Leave from America account four years ago and you only just recently started posting again. Yeah. So what was that process like? Well, I moved back to the East Coast, which felt really significant because I was like, God, was I only living in LA because I had an eating disorder? Because like it was warm all the time. And I thought, oh, I'll drink more smoothies. Like literally every decision Christy was about like my body. So I moved back to the East Coast and I moved back to be close to my family. And I kind of settled into New York for like 10 months before even making a peep on Instagram. And I just kind of like did a post like, hey guys, I moved to New York. I'm back. Saying goodbye to that career as an influencer was slow. It wasn't just such a quick kind of turn off. Like I, I like kind of was trying to maybe like do content from New York and I just was like, this isn't, this isn't aligned with me anymore. And now I simply view it as a platform to share what I want to share, whether that's my work or my newsletter, or I don't know, like a picture of my dog, but it's not something that I have to do every day. Certainly definitely not that. And it's just a place for me to kind of 
connect. I view it as a business platform. I view it as a place to kind of, I don't know, maybe if I'm like selling a bureau, someone could buy a bureau from me. You know, it's just like, it's kind of just like using it like everyone else uses it. So you're not trying to monetize it or make it into a thing? No, I'm not trying to become an influencer. I mean, like I, I do promote my newsletter and other things that I'm doing. Like if I'm doing this podcast, I'll probably post about it there. You know, like I'll, I share updates, like people share their babies. I share, this is my baby, my work. I don't know, but I'm not trying to like go full hard influencer anymore. It sounds like that life was not um, sustainable for you. And you've talked about influencers as having like a shelf life of like three to four years. And then they're kind of done because they had been a part of a niche or a trend and like, that goes out of style. And you did a post recently about talking to young people who want to be influencers. And I think it's really important to share that inside information with people who want to be influencers because they definitely don't know that, I don't think. You know, like I think young people see influencers as like they have this life forever or something, you know, and even adults who stumble into careers as influencers, I think don't realize it's not going to last forever. Even me, you know, with my limited, I, I've ne- I was never an influencer to that degree of like doing sponsorships or anything like that, but using my platform to like build up other aspects of my business, it's not something I can do forever. And I've realized that before going on maternity leave and then very much after maternity leave too, just not wanting to come back, not wanting to have to use it and like really shifting how I use it. So for anyone who who is an influencer, maybe listening or who wants to be an influencer or anyone in like a related field, like a public figure in some way who's using social media in influencer-like ways maybe to like promote their business, what do you think are some ways that people can like prepare themselves for that shift and that shelf life and think about moving on when it's done. For me, like the most important thing was really kind of going cold turkey with it. I think my last sponsor post was February, 2022. Like I tapered off beginning in 2020, but like I, it was so hard for me. But then like after that one, I was like, okay, I'm done. I'm done. I'm done. And figuring out how else am I going to make money? And now that I have figured out other ways that I can make money, I feel so free. The pressure's gone, so to speak. And also not even talking about monetization wise. And I do think that that's important to realize. So if your business is dependent on your social media, starting now to figure out like, okay, how else can you use your, what what are the parts that you don't mind? What about a newsletter? Be careful because basically like content's content. Then all of a sudden you have to do a newsletter every week. You know, it's like, what do you enjoy? What can you do? What's realistic? But I think also like another part about it is there are definitely influencers out there who who no longer do sponsor posts and they just post for fun, but they're still posting every day or like posting like an influencer, just not doing sponsored stuff. And if that's that works with you, then like that's fine. But I think it's like also really just like realizing there's a whole world out there of people who do not use social media and who are doing just fine. And whether they work for themselves or work for someone else. Like there's a lot of, there's a lot of people out there. And so just kind of like getting into the world and talking to people and seeing what other people are doing and getting inspired that way. Yeah. I love that. I mean, we connected because, well, we had a mutual friend, but also I read the piece about you, the profile of you in the New York times, which we'll link to in the show notes about leaving influencing. And I really resonated with a lot of what you shared there because 
I'm starting to think about like, do I actually want to go and work for someone else for a while? And like, you know, parlay sort of what I've done, building my own little media business into, you know, getting back into a career as an editor, which is my first career and constant love. And, you know, it's what I've been doing for 20 years, but but kind of done this way of building it for myself, but thinking about like there are benefits to working for a company or for someone else and not being the the CEO of your own business and like the face of your own business and having to constantly think about, you know, like just that always on sort of feeling and the feeling like you can't, you have to just like respond to everything and put out the fires and you can't put it down. And now that I have a daughter, I'm like, I want to be able to put it down. I want to be able to step away. And, you know, I'm thinking about sort of what that can look like for me. And I love your idea of post and ghost, which you shared about recently. That's something I've been doing for the last couple of years. You know, I like sort of stumbled into that myself as a way to just like not be so addicted. And it took me a long time actually to break myself of the habit of like checking back for likes after I posted something or like responding to comments or even just getting sucked into scrolling on the app because I had downloaded the app to post. And then I'm like, oh, let me just check real quick before I leave. And then it's like an hour has gone by and I'm just in a hole, you know? So I really appreciate the sort of model that you're giving for people of like how to step away from influencing, like thinking about other paths and thinking about the fact that working for someone else or working for a company is actually freedom in some ways. Every job sucks in some way, I think. And certainly there are jobs that suck a lot and like way more than others. You know, there's systemic inequality and all that stuff that that leads to like people having lack of autonomy and like really bad working conditions and all the things. But some of the jobs that people who are formerly influencers could get might in some ways feel like there's more freedom to them actually than the supposed freedom of being an influencer and like controlling your hours and stuff like that because it's actually a trick. Like you actually aren't really controlling your hours. You're expected to be on all the time. You're expected to be like liking and commenting and posting and sharing. And if you don't, you end up losing followers and money. So it feels like you're stuck. There's like a meme that's like leaving my nine to five job to become my own boss. And then the next thing is like me with my own business. It's 24 hours. I just think that our culture romanticizes and like I'm, I, I hail from the girl boss era and now my little cousin who's Gen Z, like she's from the TikTok era where she's watching people go viral and like overnight launching their bracelet or jewelry business from going viral on TikTok. So it's like, they're also girl bossing. And it's like, yeah, like, okay, like there's benefits to that. And there's also benefits to like, not living online and having to be on 24 seven and just like being on Slack. Yeah, that sucks. But like, have you ever been on Instagram for 12 hours a day? Like that sucks too. The article that you're talking about, like, you know, and some of my posts on Instagram, it's caused a lot of people to be like, you know, well, what's better? And I guess it's not, that's for people to discuss. And I don't mind that discussion. But I guess I just like, I want to share like, you know, what is it really like being an influencer? Because like, unless you're an influencer, you don't know. Right. And I think a lot of influencers have an incentive not to talk about it too, right? Not to talk about the parts that suck because their followers want positivity from them. Right. And like, they don't want to talk about maybe leaving. It's kind of like talking to your boss that you might want to leave before you do. It's like, that's why I just actually like five minutes ago when you were like, oh yeah, you guys, like I might go back to work for someone else. I'm like shocked that you actually just (laughs) said that because, you know, like, but that's so cool. Like, yeah, like it's kind of like, okay, yeah, like maybe I'm not that happy. 
I, and I don't honestly know how readers or consumers of media feel when they see an influencer complaining about their job. I'm going to assume not great because historically influencers are seen as like really lucky. They can't complain. They have it so good. And like, I get that, you know, like the way that they share, there are definitely perks to the job. And the cost is also really great. The cost is also really, really great. And I think that's just kind of the message that I've been wanting to share. Well, and I think that lack of sustainability is so key to it too, because I think people don't realize sometimes like the the fact that there is this short shelf life and that influencers aren't going to keep doing it forever. And so even though it's like all this seeming freedom and there is creativity in it and there is money in it, it's not like you're going to be making that money for the rest of your life. You're you're maybe going to be able to do it for a few years and then have to pivot and figure out something else. And sometimes that pivot can be really painful, I think. The painful pivot. Painful pivot. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, you're working on a new book kind of about some of this stuff and about the the painful pivot and how to get through it. And I'm curious to hear more about that and how that all came about. Yeah. Well, last year in 2022, I was like back to working for another brand full stop, like wasn't doing sponsored posts anymore. I was posting on Instagram sometimes, but like mostly just vibing, you know, just like sharing on Instagram when I wanted to and like going on my nine to five. And then, and I was working actually with influencers at that job. I was like doing social media management for a company and I was working with influencers and I was like, like, gosh, like I have such a, I have stuff to say. I have things to say. Like all the things that I'm sharing about with you now, Chrissy, were like blooming in my mind. And I woke up one morning and I was like, I need to write a book. <laughs> I mean, it probably wasn't like that. Honestly, I, I, I studied creative writing in college. I've always been a writer. I've written, you know, if you've been reading my blogs for the past 15, 14 years, you know that I write. And so it's not that surprising, I guess, for me. But it was like, it's time. It's time. And like when I was an influencer, I was always getting approached about doing a book. And I, not always, I, whatever. I, I was getting, I got approached a couple times. Like, oh, you should do a, a wellness book, a cookbook. And there was some voice inside me that was like, nope, not right. Last year, I was like, in September, I was like, all right, I'm, I'm ready to do this book. And I, I was already doing my sub stack but I started working on the book that is going to be this book. So um, I'm, I'm sorry. I'm smiling. I'm so excited. Feels like it's not even, it feels like a dream, but um, yeah, I just started, uh, you know, dreaming about it and I started to um, just put in the work. Now it's going to be coming to a bookstore near you in spring, summer, 2025. Mm. Can you give people a little taste of what's going to be in it and, you know, some of the things you're going to delve into and explore? Yeah. So the title that we have is, it's still two years out, so it might change. Sure. In my experience, they always do. Yeah. It's called, If You Don't Like This, I Will Die. And it exposes the underbelly of influencing. And I'll definitely talk about kind of like the health crisis that I hit at my bottom and how kind of like losing those hundreds of thousands of followers and sponsorships and like finding myself was uh, so it's a memoir and I have a lovely editor it's happening. Simon and Schuster is publishing it and I am just over the moon. So it's going to be kind of the story of 
of, um, you know, really wanting to be online famous, going viral, getting all those likes, becoming addicted to the likes, and then kind of the unraveling. I love it. I'm so excited to read it and talk to you more about it when it comes out because I know you're in process with it. And that can be a tricky part, having written two books of my own, although I haven't written a full memoir. I've like included some memoir elements, but a full memoir, I think, is just even more emotionally draining, I think, probably than a, a typical nonfiction book. So I'm sure that's going to be a, a journey to write it, but I'm so excited to see what comes out of it. And I also love your newsletter, and I feel like that's a good place to you know, see little bits and pieces of what might end up in the book. Oh, yeah, definitely. I loved your recent post about Instagram dentists. It was a poem. (laughs) (laughs) Like the Instagramification of everything. And I really identify with that too, like wanting more analog real world experiences. But I can imagine you didn't always feel that way, right? So just like, I feel like the, the shift in your thinking from wanting to be internet famous and being an influencer to this feeling of like wanting just non-Instagrammable life and to go back to a more analog way of being is that's a huge shift. And um, yeah, I'm just curious to hear more about it and, and talk to you more as things unfold. Yeah. Where can people find you and learn more about your work? They can find me. My newsletter is called Offline Time. And it's leetillman.substack.com. You can also go to my website, leetillman.com. Shoot me a message over there. And then, of course, you know, I still post the occasional gram, Lee from America. Amazing. We'll link to all that in the show notes so people can find you and subscribe to you, get your info, whatever, however you want to engage. Thanks, Lee. It's so great to talk with you. Thank you so much, Christy. So that is our show. Thanks so much to our amazing guest for being here and to you for tuning in. If you've enjoyed this conversation, I'd be so grateful if you could take a moment to subscribe, rate, and review the podcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you're listening. You can also support the show by becoming a paid subscriber for just a few bucks a month. With a paid subscription, you unlock great perks like bonus episodes, subscriber-only Q&As, early access to regular episodes, and much more. Sign up now at rethinkingwellness.substack.com. That's rethinkingwellness.substack.com. Got burning questions about wellness trends, diet fads, or anything else we cover on this show? Send them my way at christyharrison.com slash questions for a chance to have them answered in the Rethinking Wellness newsletter or on a future podcast episode. This episode was brought to you by my new book, The Wellness Trap, Break Free from Diet Culture, Disinformation, and Dubious Diagnoses, and Find Your True Well-Being, which is now available wherever books are sold. Just go to christyharrison.com slash thewellnesstrap to learn more and buy the book, or just go into your favorite local bookstore and ask for it there. If you're looking to heal your relationship with food and break free from diet and wellness culture, I'd love for you to check out my online course, Intuitive Eating Fundamentals. Learn more and enroll now at christyharrison.com slash course. That's christyharrison.com slash course. Rethinking Wellness is executive produced and hosted by me, Christy Harrison. Mike Lalonde is our audio editor and sound engineer, and administrative support is provided by Julianne Watasek and her team at A-Team Virtual. Our album art is by Tara Jacoby, and our theme song is written and performed by Carolyn Pennypacker-Riggs. Thanks again for listening. Take care. Take care.